If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Shakespeare is rightly heralded as one of the world's greatest playwrights. But more unexpectedly, he's also proven an object of obsession for terrorists. Rhiannon Davis spoke to Islam Issa of Birmingham City University about how Shakespeare has been used as a political puppet to further extremist agendas throughout history, as well as the terror that swirled in the playwright's own lifetime. Is there something about Shakespeare that makes him inevitably susceptible to terror? Well, I think Shakespeare's a powerful symbol. I think he's a symbol for everyone today, even if we don't notice. You know, he can certainly be a symbol of, like, grandeur and greatness and and everything that's good about literature and the arts. But with that status comes a kind of hegemonic status that also makes him susceptible to resistance. Uh, I always remember the uh, uh, something from from my childhood when I when it was Christmas time and and the teacher put on a, a video of Blackadder and uh, it's Rowan Atkinson and he meets Shakespeare and gets him to sign a manuscript and then he punches him to the ground and says something like that's for every school kid for the next four centuries and I just remember everyone in the class cheering and and thinking back I think Shakespeare can be a symbol of imposition stuff that's imposed on us even in the UK in terms of uh, the education system or, or popular culture. Elsewhere in the world, he's, he's uh, become a symbol of Britain and, and of the West, again, both as great literature, uh, but also as a kind of nuisance that was forced into education systems during colonialism or, or that represents disliked aspects of, of the West. Mm. I definitely want to find out more about Shakespeare and colonialism later. But before that, you said he's a symbol of power. And this is something that really came across in your book. I almost saw there being two Shakespeare's. So there's Shakespeare, the symbol, but then also concrete Shakespeare, tangible Shakespeare. So Shakespeare's birthplace, Stratford-upon-Avon. With these two Shakespeare's, is one of them more at risk from terrorism? It's a great question. And I I think they both are linked. Throughout the book, I separate Shakespeare, the the text, and Shakespeare, the work. And I think the text is really the plays, the language, the stuff that that you have to study at school, for example. And and the work is everything that comes with that. It's the popular cultural uh, impact. It's the cultural legacy. uh, It's Shakespeare, the figure that's often voted as the most popular figure in British history. 
So I think there are different types of Shakespeare's and, and we have to accept that. I think when it comes to both, they're both susceptible. If we think of things that are nationalistic, so to speak, are susceptible to terror. So you've got things that are concrete, like Westminster, it's susceptible to terror. Then you have things that are more abstract, like British values, you know, uh, whatever that might mean. And and they're both kind of susceptible to, to attacks. And Shakespeare's kind of similar in the sense that you've got the values that, that he has in his works and, and that shine through his texts. And then you also have those physical physical manifestations of Shakespeare, like the theatre, like Shakespeare's birthplace, which at the end of the day are still symbols. They just happen to be tangible, physical symbols. And that's why, you know, there are bollards outside the Royal Shakespeare theatre uh, to stop a hit and run of, of an audience member, for example. And that's why there are bag searches at Shakespeare's birthplace. And we've said the word terror quite a lot already in this conversation, but how do you define terrorism? The definition of terrorism is is one of the key challenges of discussing this subject. And, and it's that million dollar question. And it could be debated endlessly. And, and, and in the US alone, you know, the FBI, the Department of State, the Department of Defense all have very different definitions of terrorism. In the UK, we think of it, um, or the, the official line is that it's got an ideological cause. And then you have state-sponsored terrorism too, perhaps. There's also a wider issue that the term has become associated with certain religions and certain races and so on. So so it can also be a kind of um, discriminatory term. And I guess, ironically, in the context of the book I've written, as a result, I've had to be careful not to overuse the, overuse the term. For me, how I define it related to this topic, it's it's this link with context. So we have to understand the context in which an attack happens in order to be able to define it. And to me, that context always seemed to go in three directions. Something to do with identity or something to do with freedom or something to do with symbolism. And terrorism seemed to have something to do with one of those three every time. And throughout your book, you make links between Shakespeare and terrorism that I certainly was very much unaware of. And the first one I wanted to talk to you about is the link between Osama bin Laden, the founder of Al-Qaeda, and Shakespeare, and how he writes about Shakespeare and Stratford-upon-Avon in his personal diaries. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, when bin Laden was killed, lots of uh, different items were recovered from his hideout. And these included his diary, which was uh, taken by the uh, CIA and immediately photographed for clues, really. And it's a fascinating piece of writing and and, and has one particular reference that... And, and actually, that reference really propelled me to think more deeply about this very topic and the relationship between Shakespeare and terror. And, and it's written very shortly before his death. Uh, so so it's obviously still in his mind. So he recalls as, as, as a teenager going uh, one summer to England and, and how he'd go every Sunday, he writes to Shakespeare's house, so presumably the birthplace, and how it gave him the impression of Western society being morally loose. I'm using his his terms here, uh, translated, morally loose. So to me, by the, by the last year of his life, Bin Laden knows his status very well. I don't, I, I think he knows how important his journal is going to be. So to me, it's significant that that late in his life, he recalls Shakespeare so vividly 
and links it so directly to, to his view of Western society. And, and it's also an important moment in his journal because it's the moment uh, he describes his first ever experience of the West. So he chooses Shakespeare as the subject matter for that for that first that recollection of that first experience. Uh, and in fact, because he's a teenager at the time, uh, when he goes to Shakespeare's house or birthplace, it suggests that this is a formative experience and, and one that affects him um, as he formulates his opinion to become the the, the Bin Laden that masterminds 9-11, the Bin Laden that we, we think about today. And you mentioned identity is really important. Um, is Bin Laden using Shakespeare as a way of showing his identity by showing what he is opposed against? Would there be any way that he could not hate Shakespeare? It's it's a great question. I think I I kind of question myself the extent to which he really does hate Shakespeare. And, and particularly as, as, as the book goes on, you see that actually some terrorists are inspired by Shakespeare. I think actually maybe that teenage Bin Laden didn't understand Shakespeare and, and he has no choice but to show that he hates Shakespeare uh, later in his life. And, and it's a wider question, actually. It's, it's a question that struck me as I contemplated identity, how it's just as much about who we are as who we are not. And Bin Laden offers us a very good example of that. So, so I, I use the example of sporting rivalries in the book to think about how we kind of inherit an expected group identity and also how we think in binaries, you know, with sporting rivalries. And, and, and so when we disassociate ourselves from an identity, that can be just as important as associ- associating ourselves with one. And this all links to, to, to terrorism in the sense that the, the who we aren't is even more emphasised when an identity is under attack. So, so the criminologist I interview for the book, Imran Awan, uh, tells me about push factors that get people into terrorism, so the feeling of a grievance against something, and pull factors, like being lured in by a group because you don't have a sense of belonging otherwise. And in both of those push and pull factors, identity seems to be really key. And obviously Bin Laden talks about Shakespeare in England. So he interacts with Shakespeare and his diaries in England. But Shakespeare, as you show in your book, is not by any means restricted to England. When did he first come to the Middle East? When did Shakespeare's text first circulate in Iran, for instance? Shakespeare travels through the world, you know, Africa, India, and so on, with the British during times of, of colonialism. And, and actually, we, we, we can differentiate between two types of travel that Shakespeare does. The first is the one you're alluding to, which is translation. You know, when's it translated? And as a result, when do people interact with it on their own terms and, and in their own language? But before that, there's the British taking it with them. And that happens really early. So the first recorded performance of Hamlet, for example, 1607, is on board an East India Company ship off the coast of Sierra Leone. So, you know, I always give the example of, of the US where the, the main language in the US probably wouldn't be English without Shakespeare being imported with, with the, the early settlers. So, so there's that. It's very early. It's imposed very early. And then on the other hand, you have sort of translation and so on. And, and in these countries, in, in Iran, in, in Egypt, in these key cultural hubs, it's not until the 
you know, 19th and 20th centuries that, that there really is an influx of translation. And in large part, it's because a resistance to Shakespeare is in turn a resistance to the British. So they translate sciences, for example, but they don't translate literature. Uh, and they try to preserve their own language and culture by avoiding texts like Shakespeare's. In Algeria, for example, Shakespeare's translated not because he's English, but because he's not French. So it's a way of disidentifying from, from the French um, colonialism. Um, so there's, there isn't a kind of one-size-fits-all answer to, to Shakespeare's colonial link. But the fact he did represent the, the coloniser in some way has led to a kind of anti-Shakespeare sentiment during, during some parts of history. And would you say that he is the main face of colonialism in literature? Are there any other writers who have such a strong link with colonialism, with foreign influence as Shakespeare? It is, it is a tough question in the sense that I think Shakespeare probably is the most famous English writer, if not the most famous Western writer worldwide. And as a result, he's brought in as part of the colonial project and uh, he's obviously um, got a reputation. In terms of his actual writing, though, I don't think his writing necessarily touches quite as directly on issues of colonialism as some other writers. You know, in India, they'll talk about, you know, Rudyard Kipling's writing is talking very directly about, about uh, issues of colonisation. So Shakespeare can be interpreted in that way. But also part of the reason that he has the potential to create such an impact is because his texts talk about issues that are relatively universal. You know, it's a dangerous line to go down that Shakespeare is universal, but in reality, there are issues of love and hate and revenge and, and so on that, that people can relate to and that also um, can be translated onto the stage in a way that can be relatively apolitical if a director chooses it to be. And there's one particular production of a Shakespearean play that I wanted to ask you about, which is in Afghanistan in 2005. Kareem Jabba visits Kabul uh, to organise the performance of the first Shakespearean play in the city since the Soviets had invaded decades before. And women take part in this production. How are they treated by the Taliban? Well, women hadn't been allowed to work for six years when, when this performance um, uh, took place, let alone... Um, act and and practically all of the cast of, of this Love's Labour's Lost had serious issues as a result. Uh, when it comes to the women, um, one's thrown out of her family home, another gets death threats, another one is stabbed in the neck by, by, by a family member actually. But there's one that's particularly poignant, which is um, uh, Parween uh, Mushtahil, who, who's punched to the ground on her way home uh, one night uh, and then her husband, who, who's constantly receiving these calls, telling him to stop his wife from, from acting, was eventually gunned down outside their house and, and killed and his body was mutilated. And it's really a stark sign of how women are used as a tool in terror, uh, sometimes themselves and actually sometimes via the men in their lives, which seems to be the case often in, uh, with the Taliban. And thinking about sexual violence... How has that been used by terrorists as an instrument of terror, but also by Shakespeare? There's no doubt that gender is, is used in conflict. And, and women have long been 
used as tools of war, but also in turn as, as tools of terror. You know, the, the Serbian forces in the 90s, for instance, they carried out these mass rapes of the um, Bosniak Muslim women and and um, the International Tribunal eventually called this an instrument of terror. So, so in conflict and in war, some things are intended to terrorize uh, and, and women can be used in that. And, and they bear the brunt of war directly through things like gendered violence and displacement and widowhood and, and so on. So we see that to some extent uh, in, in the um, Shakespeare play in Afghanistan in Love's Labour's Lost. But we also see examples of that, as, as you've suggested, in the plays themselves, because they're full of this uh, sexual violence. If we look through the plays, the, the sexual violence spans from, from sort of verbal harassment to violent rape and, and, and mutilation. And often in the context of, of war, in the rape of Lucrece, in, in a play like uh, Titus Andronicus. And before we come more onto the plays themselves and Shakespeare's characters, you said something that I found really interesting, which is Shakespearean comedy is most problematic to terrorists, but the tragedies provide the inspiration. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I, it's 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 a finding of the book, so to speak. I mean, it's not something I expected, uh, but it seemed to me that the constant examples, so Love's Labour's Lost in Afghanistan, there was a, a bombing at a... Twelfth uh, night in Doha. Uh, there's um, uh, a problem with the Midsummer Night's Dream in in, in Iran. Th- they're all comedies, and, and and I thought for a moment, why is that the case? It seems to me that terrorists generally don't read the plays, and if they do, or if they if they interact with them, they want to understand them. And actually, the thing that's harder to understand is a bit more of a threat. So, so tragedies have the more universal values we've been talking about and, and, and human traits. The comedies are essentially tragic comedies. Shakespeare is very fluid with genre. So he doesn't really just write comedy or just write tragedy. They're very, they're some, to some extent, tragic comedies. They still deal with big issues of, of life, but in a slightly more hidden way, whether that's hidden through the, the, the humour or through the puns or through the happy resolution. But they still discuss some of these big issues. And I think that that mystique, so to speak, can be quite unsettling for, for, for those who, who don't like Shakespeare. Whereas the tragedies seem to present these prototypes of um, assassination and usurpation, and, um, and that can provide a more direct uh, inspiration to to somebody who wants to carry out an assassination or wants to to uh, usurp a, a power that's um, that, that they feel is is being unjust. And are there any characters in particular that have proved really big inspirations? We have someone like Macbeth who you know kills kills the the, the king and and tries to rise to power. Richard the Third you know upsets the sensibilities of so many characters and 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 kills anyone including kids who come in the way of the throne Titus Andronicus as a play is full of kind of blood and 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 gore Brutus assassinates Julius Caesar and probably the the most famous assassination in western history um, or to some extent one of the most famous uh, killings in western history 
And then the one that surprised me to, to a much larger extent was actually Hamlet and, and the way that Hamlet's been used. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. You know, a key event is the, is the gunpowder plot, which really is the biggest terror plot in, in British history. And that happens during his lifetime. But the, the, the links are greater than that. So Shakespeare's time, we do have a lot of parallels. You know, the Catholics are mythologized as terrorists. Spain is mythologized as a terrorist state. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And I wanted to ask you more about Hamlet because you reread his character through the terrorist mentality. Can you tell us a bit more about how this sheds new light on him? I first had the idea when I went to Kronborg Castle in Denmark. So it's where Shakespeare imagined the story. And I I basically realised how dull it was, how confined it was, how how there are these moats and gates to get in you know, it's really far out from the town, up a hill. So he's really far from everyone and he's just overlooking the ocean, uh, you know, with Sweden on the other side. And so Hamlet could only see this sort of deadly sea below him, this endless sky above him, all these fortifications behind him and the kind of unreachable Sweden in front of him. And I, and I just sta- stood there as heavy rain, <laughs> quite windy, which probably uh, didn't help. But it got me thinking that Hamlet really wanted freedom, this that, that term that keeps coming up. Because I know he wants a sense of identity in the sense that he tries to mix with commoners, he tries to become a director, either direct his own play and so on. But that freedom thing struck me. So I looked through the text in more detail and, and, and realised that he keeps talking about wanting to, to become free, wanting to express himself. And it sounded a lot like what Imran, the the criminologist that I'd interviewed, had told me about terrorist mentality. So I compared all these terroristic 
traits to Hamlet and, and realised, disturbingly, that he ticks all the boxes. So he's seeking this, some sort of freedom or some, you know, a perception of freedom that he has. He's carrying trauma. Uh, he's, he's rational and, and tactical. Uh, he's inspired by ideology. He's obsessed with symbolism. And ultimately, he's actually very violent. Uh, I mean, he kills five people, leads, leads to the death of two others. There's a pile of bodies on the stage by the end of the play. And in some ways, it's slightly uncomfortable reading that chapter. I don't know if you think so, but I, I, I don't know how readers will respond to it. Because I feel that we still choose to sign on to the perception of this sensitive withholding Hamlet, this popular cultural impression of the person that talks and doesn't act, um, that contemplates. And in some ways, we do that because it makes us feel better. You know, it gives us more hope uh, about, about the ideals of, of um, heroes and the ideals of, of literature. But for me, Hamlet was my favourite character. And um, let's just say I'm not sure anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and Hamlet the play gets drawn into this controversy in 2005 when illustrators drew cartoons of Muhammad and two are particularly offensive. And these are published at first in the Danish newspaper, Hans Posten. Apologies if I pronounce that terribly, which I'm sure I did. Uh, but then they are then republished in various outlets, including the French newspaper, Charlie Hebdo. How does Hamlet play into this? How is Hamlet related? I think that's part of the the, the uh, cultural legacy and and the quotability of of Hamlet on, on this occasion. So it's a slightly different link to Shakespeare, but the the there's a phrase in Hamlet: something is rotten in the in, in the state of Denmark, and that gets used over and over again, both in uh, press that's angry with the cartoons and press that actually is unapologetic uh, and and doesn't understand why there's an apology and because the reaction in in the arab world was 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 huge the boycotts of danish products really affected the danish economy and so on so there was that phrase and then built into that was a phrase that you know used so much it's almost a cliche to be or not to be and that question being asked over and over again uh, about the state of affairs in Denmark and, and the, the way that the world reacted to those cartoons and then all the consequences that you've discussed as well. And that's something I found so striking. It's, as you say, this quotability of Shakespeare, how singular phrases of his can be used by both sides, by any ideology. It seems anyone can make Shakespeare fit what it is they're trying to say. I think there is a big question when it comes to Shakespeare, which is the question of literature and actually the question of life, which is interpretation. So on a daily basis, we're making interpretations. As we walk down the street, we're making a quick interpretation about that person in front of us. They look nice, they don't look nice. You know, um, I'd be their friend, I wouldn't be their friend, or whatever you might be thinking. And, and, and Shakespeare is an example of that. It's an example where interpretation is so important, but it's also where two people can see entirely different things in exactly the same thing. And the phrase to be or not to be, particularly because it's so famous, to the extent that some people don't know it's Shakespeare and still use it, but also because it's so existential, because it asks a big question about life. That means it can be used in, in existential times of existential crisis. And thinking now about another historical group who embraced Shakespeare, the Nazis, 
Can you tell us a bit more about how they use the playwright and his plays for their own ends? Well, Embrace is is a very good way of describing it. They um, respond to Shakespeare in a way that, that makes him their own. It's, it's one of the best examples, building on what we were just saying, of, of how vastly different uh, interpretations can be. So one telling statistic is between 1933 and 1939, there, there are 50 anti-Semitic performances of the Merchant of Venice in, in, in Nazi Germany, 20 uh, of those in Hitler's first year as chancellor. So Hitler... Uh, and and the Nazis like the characterization of Shylock, this the, the Jewish moneylender in the play, and, and um, uh, Hitler also quotes uh, Hamlet in his book, you know, to be or not to be. But I think what struck me is just how much Shakespeare was used to justify Nazi ideology. So so there are a couple of examples: the Minister of Propaganda, you know, famously uh, Joseph Goebbels. Um, falls in love with Shakespeare after watching uh, Coriolanus and the Nazis publish a pamphlet called Shakespeare, a Germanic writer. So they try to begin to, to embrace him as an official line um, and they, they ban all the translations that, that already exist and introduce their own ones that are peppered with ideas of um, you know, their supremacy. So that's, that's one example. Uh, another example I go into in the book is is Carl Schmidt, um, who was who known as the crown jurist of, of the Third Reich. Uh, and to Schmidt, Hamlet explains how we can go against the law. So going against the law, he, he writes, can be justified if there's a state of exception, right? He talks about exception. So, so he uses Hamlet to reach this conclusion that, and, and he writes, sovereign is he who decides the exception because he sees that Hamlet realized that there was an exceptional circumstance, uh, the, the, the murder of his, his father and the appearance of his father's ghost to tell him to avenge it, and that that merited a response that goes against the norm. So to Schmidt, the Nazis were doing just that because there was an exceptional circumstance. There was the war and there was the um, supposed threat of, of the Jews. And another example I wanted to ask you about is the links between Shakespeare and the Confederates of the US. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, it's very much to do with with Shakespeare's hometown, uh, Stratford upon Avon, um, and 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 Warwickshire, the county, uh, became a hub uh, for Confederates in the immediate aftermath of, of the Civil War. You know, many people don't know this, but specifically, actually, uh, Leamington Spa. Uh, just north of Stratford, attracted a lot of Confederates straight after the Civil War. I mean, there are lots of stories that that, that, that could have been included, but essentially the region sympathised with with the Confederate cause. It was perfectly positioned for the new arrivals with with the you know its access to London via the train, also to Liverpool, which was a which was a key city for slavery. And then we have this idea of of Shakespeare legitimising a cause. Uh, a bit like what we said with with, with the Nazis and and and, uh, and others, but for, for better or for worse, there have been Confederates uh, associating themselves with Shakespeare uh, throughout history, and that was particularly heightened due to their proximity to his hometown. 
And there's one confederate who the links with Shakespeare are so direct, which is John Wilkes Booth, who's the assassin of US President Abraham Lincoln. So he's a confederate spy, a Shakespearean actor. And how did Shakespeare influence his murder of Lincoln? Well, like you said, Booth, along with his uh, father and, and brother, they're a Shakespearean family. They, they love Shakespeare. They're Shakespearean actors. Um, you know, they tour the country uh, putting on Shakespeare plays and, and they become famous for that. And, and he um, performs uh, in Julius Caesar, um, John Wilkes Booth, and, and, and he's a, he sort of admits his obsession and, um, w- with Brutus. He, you know, he's a Brutus fan. Uh, and we think of Brutus as, as, as somebody who carries out that or, and legitimises the assassination of, of Julius Caesar um, even if it's a mob that, that that did the actual deed. And um, Booth's uh, journal notes notes that, for example, Brutus's dagger uh, was guided by its love for Rome or something along those lines. So he, he believes that there's a, a legitimate cause to, to uh, at the right time, to assassinate. So I'd say he tries to emulate Brutus, uh, to some extent Macbeth, and and the result is that he becomes the first person to assassinate uh, a U.S. president, and and uh, he does that in a theater. Um, so he, you know, he um, almost like embeds it into the action of the play that Lincoln was watching. He knows his way around the theater. He was able to get into the theater probably because people knew who he was as an actor, uh, and he does that just a few months um, uh, after he performed in in Julius Caesar, um, and and. Booth really kind of embodies Shakespeare's idea of all the world's a stage. You know, the the this obsession with the idea of taking things into your own hands, like those characters, because there's stuff that happens on the stage that we wouldn't emulate. But I think he becomes obsessed. He becomes obsessed with some of those themes, like tyranny, like specifically Lincoln's tyranny. So in a way, he carries out an action that we'd expect from a Shakespeare character, not so much from someone in in real life. And I also found it so interesting how his time as a Shakespearean actor helped in the assassination with his Macbeth leap, which he'd perfected when he was playing Macbeth, which he then used in the assassination. It was just so many different parallels between Shakespeare there. I just found it really interesting. Um, And one other link I wanted to draw, again back to the Nazis, is um, von Stauffenberg, who tries to assassinate Hitler He's also inspired by Brutus, isn't he? Can you tell us a bit more about that? He is because we find that in his um, diary, uh, he's he's making sketches of, of, of how he perceived Brutus's assassination of Julius Caesar. So he's using not only the inspiration of the assassination story in Julius Caesar, but also kind of the tactics of it and... Uh, and, and mapping it out, that was an unsuccessful attempt. But to find in his diary afterwards that he's annotating Julius Caesar and drawing Julius Caesar the play really does suggest that Shakespeare is propelling him or inspiring him to, to actually carry out the action. Because it's one thing reading a play or reflecting on it, and it's another to really try to enact it. Mm. And we've talked a lot about how people have used Shakespeare, but something I wanted to touch on is how Shakespeare himself was impacted on things when he was writing his plays. How did the extremism of his own time impact on his work? 
There are some crossovers for sure, and and you know a key event is the is the gunpowder plot, which really is the biggest terror plot in in British history, and that happens during his lifetime. But the, the, the links are greater than that. So Shakespeare's time, we do have a lot of parallels. You know, the Catholics are mythologized as terrorists. Spain is mythologized as a terrorist state. There's a spy network, you know, operating uh, at the time, particularly in more Catholic. Uh, parts of the country like Warwickshire and and you know th- there are stories like the the Essex rebellion where they try to to overthrow uh uh Queen Elizabeth the first and and those rebels actually request a special performance of Shakespeare's Richard II to inspire them because that's a play in which the king loses loses his crown but that that it's that perceived sort of catholic threat to kill the monarch it's 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 in the air everyone feels it and 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 it's something Shakespeare would have known about because of his, uh, you know, basically Catholic upbringing. You know, his parents were essentially raised Catholics because of his family ties around around his town. So the Midlands became a hub for the conspirators, and the most famous uh, conspirators from the Gunpowder Plot were all from the region. They were family friends. They were neighbours, and and Shakespeare also maintained a link to his hometown. So even though he worked in London, he was buying property, his family was there in, in Stratford. And, and so he would have had that link, he would have known who they were, he would have frequented the same taverns as them. And he would have realised that, that his town was essentially, after the gunpowder plot, um, a terrorist hotspot that, that was under heavy surveillance. And um, there's a legal document that shows that his daughter, Susanna, went to court for failing to attend... Easter Mass in, in 1606, which shows that they were really keeping an eye on the town. And 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 the sort of newer thing I do in the book is look at new documents from John Hall, who's Shakespeare's son-in-law and who was sort of the local GP, really. Um, and and uh, his records clearly show that he maintained relationships with, with the families of the gunpowder plotters. And do we know what Shakespeare's own politics were? Do we know if he did side with the Catholics? Is any of that clear in his work or is it all just speculation, thinking about what he might have thought? I think it will remain speculation. I don't think Shakespeare would have um, liked to be known as the Catholic playwright in any way, but I don't think he would have forgotten his, his upbringing. At the same time, I think he was embedded as part of the establishment by the time this happens. He's he's more of a celebrity. He uh, he's well known um, in in uh, in the high circles. His plays are performed at court and for the for the king and for the queen. So I think he would have been very careful to maintain that. He's also opened the Globe Theatre uh, in the in the uh, uh, early 1600s, which is actually kind of an amazing business venture. You know, it it moves it allows public theatre, you know, people can pay a penny and stand in the pit, right? It's not private theatre anymore that's exclusive. That's a great business venture. And I think he won, I think he's a businessman as well. And and, and he would have distanced, distanced himself from aspects of the gunpowder plot. And for that reason, many critics over the years have, have seen he, that Macbeth and the demise of Macbeth in that play is actually an indication of, of Shakespeare's anger at the gunpowder plot or sort of saying, actually, you know what? I've got nothing to do with this. Look, I'm 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 on, on my, I'm on the establishment side, uh, and that would have probably resonated with with his audience. And would you agree with that? Do you think that is the best way to read Macbeth? 
I think it's one way to read Macbeth. And and I think Macbeth is a, is, is a complex play and a complex character. So we think of tragic heroes as, as people who are neither fully good nor fully bad, that actually invoke both our pity and our terror. Uh, and so that complexity of what tragedy is, what a tragic hero is, suggests to me that, you know, there's no um, easy answer to to what Macbeth represents. But I do think that, that Shakespeare was extra careful, perhaps, with that play because it was so soon after the gunpowder plot. And for my final question, you say in your book, and I'm quoting here, literature clearly plays a part in terroristic thinking and in what makes a terrorist. Why is that? Well, literature is a key proponent of, of culture. It's one of the things that we receive culture, that is, on a daily basis, consciously or subconsciously. It's a thing that's passed on from generation to generation. Uh, and so it, it affects our cultural makeup, our identity and the way that, that we think of ourselves and the way we think about those around us affects our perceptions of the past. It affects uh, how we think of our present and, and how we shape our future. So I think it's, a, it's vastly influential. To say that it affects terrorists is, to me, undeniable, but it doesn't mean it only affects terrorists. Uh, literature can also be a great thing and it can it can enlighten us and entertain us and, and we can't lose sight of that as well. Uh, when we go to the theatre, uh, we we have the right to enjoy the violence that goes on in the theatre, but for most people that violence stays in the theatre and shouldn't spill into real life. That was Islam Issa. His new book, Shakespeare and Terrorism, is available from Routledge and out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow when Christine Keneally will be answering your questions on the Irish famine. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.